Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Outsiders live stream for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Hey, I'm Aaron Schatz, editor-in-chief of footballoutsiders.com. Joined today by Mike Tanier, as well as Scott Spratt. We are going to go through some of the latest news in the NFL, post-draft news, now that we're in the post-draft lull. Uh, but we're also going to talk some fantasy football because we got Scott here and Scott's done all of uh, all of the preliminary Kubiak projections before he heads off on his honeymoon. Scott is getting yes. married this weekend. Yep. The leverage is now. Scott. Thank you. Very excited. It's a very big day. And uh, and then he gets two weeks off, which is very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> two whole weeks. That's that's the entire severance package. <laughs> you get two weeks off, but you have to do a podcast right before you get fitted for your tuxedo. Congratulations. It is a, it's a little crazy how in, in football these days, it's like you have to kind of work to find a two-week gap to find time between all the crazy stuff that happens all year long. It's it's a mess, but I think we're going to squeeze it in. Yeah, I think right after the draft is a good time to go. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I go on vacation plan. in February, but like after free agency, like you can do August. I guess early August, late it's, July, but fourth, the camps are open then. Fourth of July weekend is pretty much it. As long as you're not on the player gets arrested beat. <laughs> or, yeah. Player or, breaks off half his breaks off half his hand. Uh, yes. Or the uh, and, and of course this week was also the owner caught in the blue light district week. But I don't think we're covering that particular uh, story today. No. That's, that's dangerous stuff. Uh, <laughs> I'll mention Ben Robinson wants me wants to know where the hat is. Ben, that was a one time bet loss with Mike Tanier. I was a little bit too optimistic about the three and Panthers last year, lost a bet, had to wear the hat, but uh, I'm embracing baldness more generally speaking. I'll pass you one over. I'll try to get this one over to you. Oh, I don't think over. that that is how the internet works. <laughs> I try it's cause it's a Rutgers hat. If it, if it was, if it was a temple hat, it would go straight to Carolina. To, to yeah, I was going to say the Rutgers hat comes to me in new England. Cause we have had the Rutgers players. Yeah, um, we're really more temple and Baylor country down here in Charlotte. So so we wrote, uh, Scott wrote an article this week. We went through all of the projections. We did initial projections on the rookies, talking about uh, which rookies were going to be most valuable for fantasy football. Mike, on the draft show Tuesday, on the last draft show, did who's going to win rookie of the year. But mm -hmm. this is the more important question of who's going to actually help you win in fantasy football. I mean, equally equally important questions now that you can go to your local sports book and, and put some money down on either option. But yeah, yeah, I suppose that that's true. But, you know, these are the guys who we think are going to really be valuable in fantasy mm. football drafts. And you went through like a dozen players plus the quarterback. Our graphic mm. here has the top five. So let's talk a little bit about our top five rookies for next year, starting with our, our favorite running back of the year, Brees Hall. Yeah, I mean, Hall was honestly pretty close to a perfect prospect coming into this thing. Uh, first, he was the first running back taken in the draft. He was taken in the second round early, kind of in the range where a lot of the best running backs go these days, Jonathan Taylor being a great recent example. And Hall just looks so similar to Taylor in general. Both are 5'11", both between 217 and 219 pounds. Both ran 4'3", 9'40s. And Hall finished, I think, fourth all-time in our backcast projections, which go back away. Taylor was like an all-time outlier top guy. Mm -hmm. But I'll say, too, with Hall, he actually caught the ball pretty regularly in college, 10.3% receiving ratio. That was a bit of a red flag with Taylor, which ended up not mattering at all. But just from a preseason kind of feels perspective, you feel really good about Hall from all of his characteristics as a player. 
The question was really just where was he going to land in fantasy? And I would say the Jets are a good but not necessarily great option because, uh, you know, North Carolina alum like myself, Michael Carter, is with the team. And while he's a bit undersized at 5'8", 201, uh, he was really good last year. 0.24 broken tackles per touch, according to SIS. That was the top among running backs with 150 or more touches. So I'm guessing that Hall is going to end up being the lead back, but this could be a bit of a timeshare, kind of like Carter was in back at North Carolina with Javante Williams being the lead back. So, like, in the end, Hall gets projected for – 211 carries, 41 targets this season. Really good numbers, but kind of a back-end RB2 more than the, like, oh, my gosh, this guy's going to get all the touches, Najee Harris style. And he also, in broken tackle and missed tackle percentage in college, him and Kenneth Walker finished Mm 1-2. I forget who was first, but it was, like, within, like, a tenth of a percentage point. So he's a guy who's going to come in with a lot of capability to break tackles and and make guys miss, as Carter had when he came up. Mm -hmm. I I think the Jets do not have a great offensive line to get blocking for him, but it's certainly better than the offensive line that Najee Harris had last year. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh man, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a pretty low bar to clear, but you're absolutely right. The whole like left tackle sort of situation is is kind of a mystery, but you know, even George Fant played pretty well last year, and if he ends up being kind of the short term future there, I'd say their their line is average. I, I'm mostly worried about the quarterback play, and quarterbacks have a lot more to do with running back fantasy production than you might suspect, creating opportunities, especially opportunities near the end zone where running backs can often score. So it would be really good for him and for other guys we'll talk about, like Garrett Wilson, if Zach Wilson could have a really big sophomore breakout. Yeah, I'm not counting on it. I've got to say <laughs> I'm a lot more uh, sanguine about the idea mm-hmm. of a Trevor Lawrence breakout than I am a Zach Wilson breakout. Agree, agree, yeah, agree. And we have a, I mean, we see Traylon Burks there at number two. And my first concern is, I guess he's going to be the wide receiver one. Now, of course, in fantasy, that means yeah, he's going to be the wide receiver one. But what kind of wide receiver one is he going to be? Yeah, you know, this is interesting to me. It's really easy to connect the dots of the Titans had AJ Brown. AJ Brown was top three with a six point one average yards after the catch in his career in the NFL. So, like, really dangerous guy once he got the balls in his hands. And with Burks, he was the number one D1 player in yards after the catch uh, last season. So you're like, I kind of see where the Titans were doing. Now, that isn't still the perfect fantasy equation. Uh, They're obviously a run first team, especially if Derrick Henry can stay healthy this full season. They did add Robert Woods, another player that I think could potentially be the number one wide receiver. So there's a in my mind, there's a bit of a debate here between Burks and Drake London, who also got drafted much more highly. But I'll point out, too, that Burks was actually the number one wide receiver and playmaker score. And there's a bit of a disconnect here, I think, between public perception and the way that that metric evaluates prospects, where his 1,100 receiving yards at Arkansas is like way more impressive than the similar yardage Drake London had at USC, because Arkansas hardly ever threw the ball, just 294 pass attempts last season. So he totally dominated their wide receiver room and receiving work. And I think that's a really good sign of his ability to make a quick impact in the NFL. I have to apologize. When I sent the list to Ross to make the mm-hmm. uh, to make the graphic, I somehow skipped Drake London. Drake oh, yeah. London should be number three. London is three. But, but this is good. I think there's kind of a big six in the rookie class. So this is probably yeah. the best way to talk about it. I apologize anyway. that Drake London, I apologize to all Atlanta fans and to Drake London himself for leaving him off this list. I completely uh, forgot, uh, screwed up, because if you think about who has the possibility of really being wide receiver mm-hmm. one on their team, I think the most likely would be Burks and Drake London. 
Unless you think of Kyle Pitts as wide receiver, as I say, yeah. depending on how you think of Kyle Pitts. That's the thing. Like among the wide receivers on the Falcons, there's just absolutely no doubt that London is the number one guy because their number two then is what Olamide Zacchaeus, an Aaron favorite. Their yes. their wide receiver depth chart is is pretty barren at this point. But Pitts is going to see the most targets. I think we can say pretty definitively. And while we think of the Falcons as being this like air it out type of offense with tons of pass attempts, they play in a dome. It's all great. The quarterback change could have a lot more to do with this than, than you might suspect, where Ryan threw, I think, 560 pass attempts last season. Uh, we're projecting for the second fewest pass attempts for the Falcons this year with Marcus Mariota, who's a bit of a runner, um, and, and with a rookie, Desmond Ritter, who, if he starts, is actually a bit of a runner, too. So there could be some changes in the offense, and it may not be quite as gunslinger as it once was, which, I mean, I think London's going to have a great rookie season, but it may not be. Tip top, obviously the number one wide receiver. I, I actually think he's the number two wide receiver this season among the rookies. And by the way, both Burks and London are plus 750 to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. So they're tied for second behind Kenny Pickett. And, of course, it's different. Mm-hmm. Rookie of the Year versus fantasy is very different when it comes to yeah. quarterback. So, yeah, Burks, the, the, the house seems to believe with you and Burks and London there. We're, we're all in agreement there. Especially because Pickett would not be much of a runner. So even if Pickett were a week one starter, not only do you feel like Pickett's going to have weak passing numbers – but he's not going to have the rushing numbers that Ritter or Malik Willis would have if they were starting. They have much more fantasy value than Pickett does. Yeah, for sure. It's it's honestly the tie in there is potentially with team success because you could imagine Pickett being a week one starter, not necessarily saying he will be. We'll, we'll right. get to that. But like the Steelers could win 10 games and sneak in the playoffs, even if Pickett's a full season starter. Yeah. Great defense, great supporting talent. Maybe not a great offensive line, but but whatever. They've got some encouraging signs. If any of these other rookie quarterbacks end up getting the, the full year of starts, it's it's hard to imagine them having a ton of success on some pretty depleted rosters. I would say Atlanta and probably my Panthers in particular. <laughs> yeah, so our, the projections love the Steelers' defense to rebound this year after being kind of average last year. But, of course, they were so good the two years before that. And the best defense – projection is a battle between the Steelers and the Saints Mm. which brings us to Chris Olave on the Mm. offensive side of the ball for the Saints because I mean I really feel like the Saints are really underrated for this year if they can have an average offense if their defense does what we think it'll do that's a pretty good team so how much does Olave contribute to them having an average offense I mean, I think it's fair to assume that the Saints are going to really throw a lot of passes to Olave this year. They traded up just a king's ransom of draft picks to get to him, thinking presumably that he was kind of the final piece of the puzzle. And I think there there's some reasons to believe it and some not to. Like one reason for pessimism is that Michael Thomas had just an otherworldly 31% target share back in 2018 and 19 when he was last healthy, second highest just to, behind DeAndre Hopkins. So like Alave is pretty definitively the number two if Thomas can stay healthy this year. Mm. Of course, Thomas has played, what, seven games the last two years because of various ankle injuries. So a bit of a question mark from that perspective. But I would then say from a fantasy perspective, one reason I might be a little bit more pessimistic of him than I am of London and Burks is the relative lack of size. He's six foot and 187 pounds. And while he's super fast, sub 4440 guy can kind of stretch the field and score some long touchdowns. In general, the guys that are that small don't score a ton of touchdowns. He actually led this class with a 20% touchdown rate at Ohio State, but like college game is just a little bit different. And I'm actually projecting him for a lower uh, projected peak touchdown rate in the NFL than, than London, even though London scored way less often in his college career. It's just There's just a big difference about being a red zone target when you're 6'4 than when you're 6 feet and 187. 
Yeah, I look at Alave like they, the Saints usually have Devaray Henderson. They used to have Robert Meacham. And then I think Kenny Stills was more of that guy. He's the vertical guy. And you could usually pencil in six, seven, eight touchdowns with Drew Brees at quarterback from mm-hmm. that guy. But somebody else, Thomas, before that, Colston, some of these other guys, they were the ones, the PPR league, the 100 reception guy. It was, it was a different role in the offense. Just remember, Jameis Winston was kind of good last year when he played. I mean, that – Saints offense was bad because Simeon was bad and then Taysom Hill was worse. And then Ian Book <laughs> Ian was Buck. horrendous. Well, outsider's favorite, Ian Book. Uh, <laughs> Mike, this is an interesting question, I think, for you too, because of your Eagles uh, uh, proximity, where there does seem to be kind of like a new wave of receiving threat in the NFL where some of the smaller guys have kind of gotten these earlier round picks, do a little bit more than your traditional small players, Devontae Smith being a, a prime mm-hmm. example. But Smith didn't score a lot of touchdowns last year. Right. Do you think that's Jalen Hurtsy? Do you think that Smith is never going to score a lot of touchdowns? Like, how does that kind of work in the new NFL? Uh, the, the Eagles were an outlier in a lot of that stuff. Like, the Eagles would get into the red zone, and having run the ball the way down the field would try to throw the ball. Hurts the, at the goal line was having a hard time finding people. Nick Sirianni mm. called some wacky plays down there. There was this need to force feed Jalen Rager the ball in those situations, which worked out as good. <laughs> that, that went well. That, that need is gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, and, and 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 Devontae is different because he was a smaller receiver who could do a variety of things. Was a good intermediate target, pretty good over the middle target. So it's hard to say with that. If, if I'm looking for a red zone target, I think I'm still looking for a bigger guy. I'm looking for Drake London. Yeah in that role and maybe a niftier guy like Garrett Wilson, potentially than the pure lift the lid speed guy, which is, I think is where Alave fits in. Uh, CCX three asks, what kind of guys does Jameis like? Has Jameis ever had a receiver as fast as Alave? Like thinking back to Tampa, I mean, obviously his number one receiver was Mike Evans. who's a yeah, very different kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the speedsters on those teams. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the guy Jameis likes is, is kind of a free safety. I mean, let's <laughs> come on. You know, he was pretty good last year, and yeah, twenty-five interceptions. I'm not sure. A deep threat will obviously help, though, in that in that offense because there was none. Derek talks about it on our podcast. There was no deep threat. There was no opportunity to push the ball downfield last year, and really the year before that as well. You know, I would say, like, I think Jameis does throw a pretty deep ball. And while he sort of famously threw so many balls up for grabs his last year in Tampa, I think so much of that was the Bruce Arians offense that loves to strike the ball down the field. I'm not sure that's really what the Saints are all about, but you do feel better about Jameis, I think, being a quarterback for a rookie with speed than you might say Zach Wilson, who I think has another player that would kind of be in this mix. I'm sorry. I'm still, like, we're near six of this hypothetical Jameis that's out there when he's healthy and when he's in the right. So I'm sorry. I'm, I don't mean to be skeptical, but like someday we're going to see this real Jameis that we keep hearing about. I tell it. The fact is if you, other than the 30 interception year, Jameis has always been slightly above average. Right. He had one horrendous weird year. Other than that, he's always been slightly above average. I think that they can have an average offense. All right, we'll probably be revisiting this often during, yes. during the summer. <laughs> uh, Garrett Wilson, the other Ohio State guy with the Jets. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about Garrett Wilson is like, so what happens to Corey Davis now, right? Like everybody feels like, oh, Garrett Wilson comes in and he's, you know, Eli- he's not Elijah Moore. So Elijah Moore still plays his role. Right. He's not Braxton Barrios. So Braxton Barrios still plays his role. But what happens to Corey Davis? 
it's just hilarious. Like, is it is it just me or the Jets have like too many good receiving options? <laughs> they bring in CJ Uzoma too from the from the near champion Bengals is a much better pass catching tight end option than they had all of last year. But you know, I think they're these skill guys are really good. Elijah Moore had a negative receiving DVOA last year, but also had the fourth lowest catchable target percentage. Again, so much of this is about Zach Wilson and whether he can yeah. take a step forward. But right. I think Moore is is like a very talented player, and I think Braxton Barrios. So his 5.8 average yards after the catch the last two years, that's tied for six best among wide receivers. It's tied with Cooper Cup, a.k.a. the Triple Crown winner from last year. And I know that a lot of that is because of a lower average at the target, and he's more of a slot-only receiving option. But if the Jets wanted to, I think they could pretty uh, seamlessly put him in the slot role that Jamison Crowder used to have. And they just have too many good pass catchers to go around. It may be conventional wisdom that Corey Davis is the big loser here, but I don't know because, again – Wilson is another one of these smaller new type receivers, six foot, 183 pounds. Elijah Moore is small. They may need to keep Davis on the field just to have some size, especially from a run blocking perspective. But I don't know, Mike, how someone's a loser in this, in this uh, field here. Is it, is it Davis or is it maybe Barrios or, or what? There's a chance that all the boats go up a little bit because the offense in general mm-hmm. improves and Zach Wilson improves. And that's probably what you're hoping for. But I think Boreas and Moore are going to be competing for slot type roles that they're going to be in those third, four receiver roles. I think, like you said, Davis is going to be on the field because of his size, run blocking, big target, boundary target, end zone target. And I leave it to you what that means for fantasy, but it's probably a situation where everyone leeches off of each other. That's one of the reasons why, rookie wide receivers in fantasy tend to be mm. not your best option because they wind up, be, oh, oh, he's off the field because he doesn't know this play. He doesn't know this system. He doesn't run block well enough. We need Barrios and, and, and Davis out there. And suddenly Garrett Wilson's getting fewer targets. Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to get carried away because we've had Justin Jefferson and Jamar chase the last two years, just be out of this world immediately. But like our projection for Garrett Wilson is, is 90, uh, 90 targets this season. He was the 53rd wide receiver in our fantasy rankings right now. So it's like, you know, it's it's not like the immediate impact that you might expect of a top 10 type of receiving talent in the NFL <laughs> draft. But that's by and large, that's really the way that it tends to go, even in today's game for, for rookie receivers, where I, I think some year, of it is like, year two or three. There's a good chance that one of these rookie receivers is going to hit that thousand yards. Mm-hmm. But which one? Which know. one? There's you six of them that went off in the first 20 picks. Fantasy team, so it's true. None of them are really favored to do it. Um, would Alave and Wilson be perceived differently if they weren't coming out of the same program? Yes, because they wouldn't have um, Stroud throwing him the ball. Well, that's uh, true. Yeah, I mean, they, they looked, I mean, they are phenomenal receivers who got to look extra phenomenal because they have a quarterback who's probably going to be a one or two quarterback next year who already looks better than a quarterback in his class throwing him the ball. And all of that is a halo effect, but you know, it's one of those things where it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. They look great coming out of Notre Dame. Well, they went to Notre Dame because they were five-star recruits and they're going to come out of Notre Dame, potentially more NFL ready, more uh, ready to get their opportunities because you know, they were in a system where they're playing at a high level against high level opponents. So we're Ohio state. In this case, but, you know. So like my mind immediately goes to that LSU team that had Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry on it. And like, I think they both really overachieved on expectations coming out of there because there really weren't enough targets to go around. But to me, this is a bit of a different situation because they did both get drafted so highly that I think the expectations are already really high. And it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that they couldn't show their full potential there. Do you remember their quarterback for uh, Beckham and Landry? 
Um, Zach Mettenberger, wasn't Mettenberger, the Titans legend Mettenberger. Yes, love it. That's correct, gentlemen. Uh, we'll, we'll get to Christian Watson in a second. A couple of people have asked about Christian Watson, but first we've got Kenneth Walker with Seattle. Um, someone was criticizing you today saying Chris Carson is not a veteran dropper mm. because of the draft. He's a veteran dropper because of the, his neck. But I think what it is is the draft told us what Seattle thinks about his neck. Yeah, Like yeah, we didn't know what Seattle thought about his neck injury. Now we know they don't think he's playing. There's definitely uneven information publicly versus with the team. And I think not only did they draft a running back, but they drafted a running back who kind of has Carson's game where it's like, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to suggest that, you know, even if Carson comes back and is healthy, is he going to be with the team next year? They've got Rashad Penny and it's, it's hard to imagine that the team is going to make room for those three backs with Carson still getting paid a pretty decent amount of money. Um, but even assuming Carson isn't in the mix here, it's hard to imagine that this is a great landing spot for Walker this year. Beyond the fact that they don't have Russell Wilson anymore, it's, it just looks like this could be a competitive backfield. Rashad Penny, who the team brought back on a kind of a modest deal, but was still really, really good last year. His 27.3% rushing DVOA was second best among regular running backs, and is just a huge breakaway threat with, with great speed. He had 6.3 yards per attempt last year, but even before that, 5.1 in his career. So it's really all about the injuries, and he's had a ton of them in his career. I think we can understand that. But if you have a little bit of optimism about his health, it's hard not to see this as sort of a Broncos situation last year where Penny might be the Melvin Gordon type and then the rookie Walker, really more the Javante Williams type. Yeah. While those guys had 203 and 180 carries last year in the 16 games they played together, that's <laughs> like a, you know, I have Walker as the 38th running back in the fantasy draft this year. It's just, it's not somebody that you're going to get excited about in year one, again, with that huge type of bell cow workload. What about the quarterback situation in Seattle? How does that impact all this? Well, it, you, sh you really can't imagine it's going to lead to a lot of extra pass attempts with the kind of Matt Ryan angle of this. It's right. You assume they're not going to be a super efficient offense, and then it, even if they are a little bit more efficient than we expect, you know Pete Carroll loves to run the ball, so... I don't know. It's I just don't think they're going to be generating a lot of opportunities to score in the red zone. And so it could be some empty fantasy calories for Walker if he's not getting a lot of touchdowns and not catching a lot of passes, just a 4.7% college receiving ratio. Uh, some guys like Jonathan Taylor end up catching a lot more in the pros, but you know, it's, it's not to me a super promising sign of a three down workload. Yeah. Um, CCX three says Isaiah Spiller. Feels like a sneaky great PPR guy. Now I'm trying to remember where Isaiah the Chargers got drafted. Ooh. Yeah, I mean it would take. He's an Austin Eckler gets hurt. Super sneaky guy this year for sure. Um, you know he's he's one of the guys that really dropped a lot further than than we expected. He was fifth in back cast. I think play a lot of scouts thought he might go in the second or early third round. Mm -hmm. Slipped until later. I think long term it's probably a really promising landing landing spot, or could be one if if Eckler can't kind of last through the full season healthy this year. Obviously, you've got a great offense, a great quarterback that can kind of generate him some opportunities. Um, but in the short term, so many of these third and fourth round guys are blocked by a really good running back, and so you're playing the injury game a little bit there, uh, except with the Texans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Spiller strikes me as the kind of guy who helps the Chargers a lot, and then. On your fantasy team, it's like, oh, he went six carries for 23 yards and a touchdown the week I didn't have him out there, and then on the next week, and you know, you're kind of stuck with that. Yeah, that's I I agree. I mean, I think Eckler is their guy. If mm -hmm. if um if 
if he's healthy, he's their guy. And I, CCX3 believes he's going to have a lower workload. I'm not sure why we would believe he's going to have a lower workload. He's, he's a smaller back. But I mean, to... yeah, but he's the same size that he was the last two years. I think right. Eckler is also one of the backs that seems small if you just look at his weight, but by being short, actually is a little bit more stout than you would expect. So like from a BMI perspective, I think he is big enough to have 200 plus touches as he survived last season. Let's talk about Christian Watson. As Patrick Seely says, he thinks Christian Watson is the receiver who's going to hit the thousand yard mark. But why does Christian Watson not make it into the top five, actually top six of the rookie fantasy projections? He's actually number seven. He is. And it's I think it's really easy to, to draw a line from, hey, Devontae Adams is gone. They needed a new wide receiver. They drafted Watson, traded up to get him early in the second. This is going to be the guy. But I think there are some reasons to be pessimistic. One is from a scouting perspective. He's much more of a, a Marquez Valdez-Scantling type of player than he is a Devontae Adams type of player. Adams is 6'1", 215, so bigger, slower at 4'5", 640. Watson is 6'4", tall, but 208, a little bit leaner, ran a 4'3", 640, super fast, pretty similar measurables to, to Valdez-Scantling, who ran a 4'3", 740. So from my perspective, he may be a little bit more of a field stretcher, and he is not experienced. Like Watson caught 43 balls if, in 12 games last year and did that at North Dakota State which while that is sort of the pro style offense that is kind of out there in the D2 level is not division one college football. So like this is, this is a step up and it's asking a lot for this guy to come in and just get a Devontae Adams type of workload. Right. By the by Adams caught 38 and 50 balls his first two years in the NFL didn't crack 500 yards. Again, Jamar chase is the exception here. It's, it strikes me as it's going to be pretty unlikely that Watson comes in and, and hits a thousand yards. Agreed. Yeah, I, I agree. He sort of plays the MVS role more than he plays the Devontae Adams role. And even Devontae Adams, like you said, was not Devontae Adams in his first couple of years. Yep. And uh, speaking of MVS, he's now going to compete mm -hmm. with Sky Moore with the Kansas City Chiefs, who Sky Moore is our next guy. Um, what are your thoughts on Sky Moore? And then we'll get to Velas Jones. Yeah, I think Sky Moore, from a fantasy perspective, obviously it's hard to land in a better spot than having Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback. It's also kind of easy to connect the dots between Tyreek Hill and him. He's five foot ten and one ninety five, ran a four four one forty. So that's like the speed slot type of guy, not just your traditional Braxton Barrios type of quick twitch slot guy. So you're like, you can kind of see the developmental angle with this. But it's another situation where it's it's easy to be a little bit too optimistic. Another guy, Tyreek Hill, had just 61 catches as a rookie, less than 600 receiving yards. It's really hard for these guys to make an immediate impact. And even though Moore has a little bit of a different different build and skill set, to me there is some overlap there with Juju Smith-Schuster in there on the short-term contract. Both probably do their best work from the slot. So this may be a situation where there's a bit of a rotation, maybe not somebody like Hill getting just tons and tons of targets. It's a little bit more distributed. So we're looking at closer to 60 targets this season where he's, you know, a top 70 fantasy receiver, a top 10 fantasy rookie, but not necessarily a guy that's going to win you your fantasy leagues. And you also have Travis Kelsey probably defaulting to being sort of target one in terms of target share potentially mm -hmm. there. And yeah, there's a lot of balls to go on. Vada Scantling, is there as a potential seam stretcher. And in terms of your jet sweeps and all of that, those goodies, Mikol is still there as like mm -hmm. the gadget guy who's probably going to take over some of the lid lifting. It's tricky to find any one of those guys and say, oh yeah, this is going to be the next 
Tyreek. I think that's silly. Yeah, I mean, they're all interesting players to bet on from a fantasy perspective because one injury could elevate multiple of these guys. But at least to start the season, this seems like it may be a lot more distributed than what the Kansas City Chiefs offense was in previous seasons. Yeah, Bill Houston says Chiefs fans need to pump the brakes on the sky <laughs> expectations and see him more as the median between Nicole Hardman and Tyreek. Okay. He's a and, uh, what about Vellis Jones? Now, Vellis, of course, is 137 years old. He's the oldest rookie <laughs> in NFL history. Poor Vellis. I can't believe the Patriots didn't get him, actually. That, that would have been way more on brand. <laughs> yeah, what is he, 25? Yeah. Also, a huge special teams contributor. Belichick would have loved – if he had played college lacrosse, can you imagine what draft pick uh, he would have spent on? Oh, my gosh. He's Vellum um, Jones. He's like an ancient manuscript written on, like, a cow's stomach. That's how old he is. Um, so – I lean on on you here, Mike, because I saw Jones really as more of a returner in the short term, but the Bears have such a big need at wide receiver if Justin Fields is going to have any chance. Like, is Jones going to be able to kind of come in and do more work offensively than he really did in college? Yeah, he had a pretty significant role for Tennessee at the end of his career. So he was doing things as sort of a boundary vertical guy. I saw him at the senior bowl. I thought he was okay. I thought he was mm-hmm. fine. He wasn't. He didn't stand out particularly among that pack compared to guys like Christian Watson, kind of as a speed guy, boundary guy, etc. He's not ready to step in and be wide receiver one or wide receiver two if, if Mooney is wide receiver one. Um, so the best thing I say is from a fantasy standpoint, he's going to get targets. He's going to get opportunities because there ain't nobody else. But is that a good? Is that a good plan to say? Well, no, I feel like. Even if he's wide receiver two, wide receiver two in one of the worst offenses in the league is not going to get you a lot. Right. Right. There are a lot of fantasy receivers that I think are better bets as a sleeper this year. In fact, like guys like George Pickens didn't even crack the top 12 among my fantasy rookies. Uh-huh. So I don't think Jones is on my my shallow draft list for a one-season league. Maybe it's a little bit more intriguing from a dynasty perspective, although you would, again, feel better if he wasn't already 25. Now, you and I talked about Jamison Williams and John Mechie and trying mm-hmm. to figure out when they're coming back. Now, Mike Clay from ESPN is projecting full years for Williams and Mechie. We were a little bit more conservative with Williams and Mechie. You know, I definitely feel like for Detroit in, this, in particular, although Mechie is – remind me where Mechie went? The Texans. Okay, so both of them are in basically the same – spot yes. although i think houston is has less self uh in there but like how like do you really need to win in the first six weeks to right rush jameson williams back or is it better for the long term of your team if you right. pup him and make sure mm-hmm. he's fully healthy before you bring him back yeah. So as a spoiler, we are projecting both of them to return in that week seven to week 10 window where like if he lands on a pup list, it would be after that finishes. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. As as mentioned, there's definitely no incentive from a team perspective to like make it an aggressive play in the least. But that said, I do understand Mike's perspective that these guys could be ready. So Williams tore his ACL in the college football championship. That was on January the 10th. Mechie tore his ACL in the SEC championship back on December 4th. And while I still have a hard time adjusting to where, like, in my mind, an ACL tear is a full year injury, I think with medical advancements over the last decade, that kind of isn't true anymore. So, like, Adrian Peterson broke that mold really close to 10 years ago when he came back after eight months from an ACL tear. But, like, Amari Mm -hmm. Rogers, when he tore his ACL in Clemson, was back on the field playing in six months. 
I think it's fair to say that this is maybe more of a seven to nine month injury these days. And if you kind of connect the dots in that perspective, like eight months from Williams injury would put him at September 10th. That is Sunday of week one is September 11th. So like it is right there at the start of the season. Yeah, it definitely sounds then like there's more likely that Mechie is back for the start of the season because that one month makes a huge difference. It does, but also whether or not you're willing to believe the player on this, Williams told reporters on March the 30th till James Palmer of the NFL Network that he was ahead of schedule and expected to be physically cleared for training camp. And to me, that's kind of a big deal because even if these guys were fully healthy by the literal start of the season, have they gone through all of the like offseason training work, which is going to like, these guys are rookies. Like, do they know what to do? I don't know if we're, if we're quite there yet, but if they can actually be ready in more like six or seven months, to me, that actually would be a huge difference. And maybe they could be ready for week one, but I, I still think that it's from where we are in the, in the calendar. I think it's fair to be a bit pessimistic for both players making a very immediate impact this season could happen, but it also could be more of a mid season type of deal. Right. Obviously, Williams is huge for dynasty leagues. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of... If you assume, first of all, you know how good he is. And once he comes back healthy, and if you assume that there's a very good chance that Detroit goes out and gets a quarterback at the top of next year's draft, uh, Williams just huge dynasty value. Also, he's he's very complimentary in terms of skills with Amon Ross St. Brown, who's really not a slot-only guy, I wouldn't say, but with Williams on the outside as a speed guy, really makes sense in the slot. And it feels like that could be a very exciting offense in a couple of years with my man Dan Campbell at the helm. Uh, let's talk about when the quarterbacks are going to play. What What is your feeling about, I mean, again, this is all guesswork here, but mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about our guesses as far as the quarterbacks and what's the likelihood of them starting the season or you know coming into the middle of the season. So I'll, I'll lean on Mike a bit here from the actual pers- like quarterback prospect perspective. I'm a little less first there, yeah. but I kind of looked at this from two perspectives from the teams, which is like how desperate are they to win and how decent of a stop gap do they have? So like Pickett obviously got drafted well ahead of these other guys. So you're like, seems like he's probably the guy that is the quickest to the field, but I would say the Steelers are not that desperate because they have a pretty decent stop guy in Mitchell Trubisky and might be competitive with him anyway. Right. So like I was thinking maybe this is maybe more of a week seven or maybe even later or not even this season if they're having early success with, with Trubisky and are tracking toward the playoffs. From my perspective, even though he was a later pick, Desmond Ritter may have a chance to start a little bit earlier because while the Falcons are in no way desperate to win, I think probably want to lose so they can get a good draft pick next season. Why not? throw Ritter out there if he's ready to go a little bit and just evaluate him kind of in the same way the Texans did with Davis Mills last year, where as long as he's not going to be under like total duress and and just having adjusted fields type of situation where it's a catastrophe, might as well evaluate the guy because I think it's fair to say Marcus Mariota is probably not the long-term future for the Falcons at quarterback. Right, Mike? Right. And Mariota is going to get injured in the preseason. That's Uh, just how life goes. And then Ritter will be out there. I think Ritter is probably the most actual ready to take the field, including Kenny Pickett of all of them. Yeah, so Willis, I think we all expect, is probably getting a redshirt year. Uh, we're projecting him for a maybe week 18, kind of like Mahomes in his, his rookie year. Like, hey, there's nothing to play for for the Titans. Let's throw the kid out there, see what happens. So, Mike, to me, Matt Coral is the one that's the most interesting. We're currently projecting a between week 10 and then a not this season type of entry here, where the Panthers are the most desperate of these teams to win because I think Matt Rule has to expect he's going to get fired if he doesn't make the playoffs this year. 
but they also have probably the worst stopgap solution in, in Sam Darnold, who had the second worst passing DVOA last season. So it's like you're balancing, hey, like we got to find a quarterback. If Darnold's not that guy, do we just hail Mary and throw Matt Coral in there and hope something good happens because we're going to get fired if we don't? Cor- Coral could conceivably pepper pot and energy and enthusiasm his way past Darnold in the preseason. He could create a ground, groundswell of that get into that lineup and distribute a bunch of little short passes, you know, to DJ Moore. And if, if, if Christian McCaffrey just right. 40 at him and then hope he lives through it. Dink, 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 dunk and scramble and make it kind of fun and interesting. That is a scenario that happens. I don't think it's a long-term solution and I don't think it's a s- sustainable, but it might make more sense than putting Sam Donald out there. So I could see him seeing the field and I could see him when he start doing DFS and stacks, Mm-hmm. And like him getting in there and having a low value on a stack and like, oh, he gives you scrambling yards too. And what about <laughs> the screen pass to Chuba Hubbard for the touchdown? Let's do this. I could see him have that having value like that. I could also see, by the way, Caleb Ellaby having that value undrafted for the Seahawks coming in some point early in the season and, and taking a job from Drew Locke. You know, Bill Houston, if Matt Rule does get fired before week eight, that's even more reason for for uh, Coral to get out there and play some games from an evaluation standpoint. Again, like Ritter, like Davis Mills last year, might as well trot your rookie out, see what he has, because these teams are probably looking at the better quarterback options in next year's class. Want to make a quick decision. Caleb Ellaby, huh? Caleb Ellaby. <laughs> should I be adding Caleb Ellaby to the going deep section? Put him to the going deep section. He's third string behind Geno Smith and Drew Locke. He was Sky Moore's mm-hmm. quarterback. He's like a, a low-budget version of Matt Corral. He doesn't run as well, but he's like a, 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 um, a RPO machine. And Joey Sucks, do not call him Riddler. Because every time you call him Riddler, I will be picturing Desmond Riddler as Frank Gorshin. That's how far back I go. And the Falcons will put him on the on the field with a little question mark instead of a number. Yes. The danger with Ritter is that a desperate organization might take him playing as the 20th best quarterback as a positive sign for future growth and not has his, his cap. Uh, this has been a text from the future of the Houston Texans. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, isn't that kind of the feeling about Davis Mills? You know, he got better in the second half of last year. How how good can Davis Mills really be, though? Right. Right. Riddle me this, Jack Easterby. Well, I mean, is a quarterback of the future, not a quarterback of the future. One sort of counterpoint is that we are all teams included a lot worse at projecting quarterbacks than we would want to be. So it's not that insane that a, a day three quarterback ends up going on to have some some NFL success. So. It's, it's not the worst idea if you're not going anywhere in the short term to, to like see if it happens, especially if it's going to lose you games to get you a better draft pick next year. All right, let's hit quickly. We've got a little graphic of the veterans who lost the most value, according to this draft, guys to get off your keeper teams. Mm. Now, I'm, I don't know if people cut people from their keeper teams in the offseason, but, you know, guys to not keep. Yeah. A Davis Mills DVOA, by the way, Ben Robinson asks, was like minus 8%. It really wasn't that bad. He was the second best the second rookie best quarterback in DVOA behind just Mac Jones. Yeah. Uh, so pretty shocking, but yeah, promising. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. So yeah, Chris Carson, you know, this told us what Seattle believes about his neck. They believe he's not playing. Mm. He's not going to be healthy. 
That one's pretty obvious. Honestly, a lot of these, you can just kind of connect the dot from the rookie that got drafted to the player whose job he's taking. Although right. I guess in the Eagles case, it's it's not the rookie they drafted. It's the A.J. Brown they traded for. Right. Which is that, that's pretty tough. When you're the second wide receiver for the Eagles in Quez Watkins, you're like, yeah, I'm going to have a little bit of a role even if we bring in a rookie. Nope, we brought in A.J. Brown, maybe the best wide receiver in the NFL. So he drops from... Yeah, 75 basically fan projected fantasy points to like he's probably going to be a Kenny Stills type of like occasional home run hitting threat. Yeah. But it's hard to imagine him getting even close to the 60 some targets he had last season for the team. Uh, that That's tough for his fantasy value. Right. Yeah. Keyshawn Vaughn is an interesting one because he's been a, he's a third rounder and he's mm-hmm. been around for a couple of years. And Rashad White is also a third rounder. But at the same time, it's like if the Bucks really felt like he was doing anything exciting in, in practice, wouldn't they have given him more time in the first couple of years? So even though those guys have the same draft um, pedigree capital spent on them, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like Vaughn's going to take a backseat to Rashad white. It's a guess, but that's the angle that I took here too. So Vaughn has only taken 26 and 36 carries his first two NFL seasons And it's looked good from like a traditional efficiency perspective, 4.7 yards per carry. But I think Vaughn has had unusually easy difficulty carries, both in the fact that Tom Brady was his quarterback and teams are a little bit more scared of him. Mm -hmm. And also, too, it's a 50% rushing success rate is is pretty average. I think a lot of his carries came on like third and long situations where you can bang out your six-yard runs Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really move the needle in any way. So I, I think that's a little bit overstating how good he is. From the Rashad White angle, that's a third-round rookie for this year, he was second in back cast. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic for him. Uh, and while that may have been true for Vaughn a couple of years ago, the fact that we haven't seen anything so far I think is, is discouraging for his future value. Carter's Carter, Michael Carter is the one guy who I think people might have considered mm-hmm. keeping in a keeper league who now you can't keep at all. <laughs> well, yeah, in a dynasty league, you probably still can. But from a keeper league perspective, it's tough. And I hate this again. Both North Carolina alums hate to see this for Carter, uh, especially because, again, another guy where the fact that he's 201 pounds understates the size because he's five foot eight. So the BMI perspective, he's like he's a little bulkier than that. But it's hard to, to see the Brees Hall pick as anything other than an indication this team wants to go with at best like a full committee but more likely like again the like Brees Hall is the is the primary back and Carter's the change of pace back and Carter was like super dangerous in a limited workload last year again he led running backs and broken tackle rate uh but he is such a good pass catcher is like more of the shifty side of things where you see Hall is really maybe more the between the tackles tackle breaker and it's you know it's a great problem for the Jets to have but from a fantasy perspective it's it's not good for Carter's fantasy value. He's down to 44th in, in our running back rankings, even in PPR formats. And uh, Zach Moss is the other one. The Bills did eventually take a running back, right? Everyone wanted to mock a running back to the Bills. They did eventually yeah. take one. Not one who's going to take Devin Singletary's job, but James Cook is absolutely going to take Zach Moss's job. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw this with Moss coming because he got a healthy and active a couple times down the stretch last year. Mm-hmm. And while Sean McDermott is like, it's just a numbers game, I think it was pretty easy to see. Like, he was really bad in yards per carry. He was had the second lowest average yards before contact. Kind of a weird one. I don't think that was entirely blocking related. I think some of that was like vision and decision making. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think some some fantasy players may fall into a bit of a trap here thinking that, that Cook is going to come and take Singletary's job. I don't totally think that's the case because Cook is, unlike Dalvin, dramatically smaller, like a below 28 BMI type of player. 
To me, he is, you know, how the team tried to sign J.D. McKissick in the offseason. To me, he is sort of the McKissick guy. So the Bills offense may look a little bit different with a little bit more kind of third down check downs to the the running back. Try to keep Josh Allen a little bit healthier this season. Um, But I I think Cook is going to probably have fewer than 100 carries. Um, So it's bad news for for Zach Moss, but I think Singletary remains a top 25 type of running back. Mm. All right. The other thing we wanted to talk about today before we uh, sign off from today's show is the Cleveland Browns and the exciting news about uh, Mike's Cleveland Browns duck. (laughs) The exciting news about uh, Cleveland's controversial four-year plan bonuses for Hugh Jackson, the story that came out this year. There was a bonus for Cleveland getting at least 11 picks in the 2016 draft, a bonus if five of those picks were in the third round, the, the first three rounds, a bonus if the team ranked in the bottom quarter of cash spend in 2016, and a bonus if the Browns carried over at least 15% of league cap from 2016 to 2017. Now, it's interesting because these these um, – Bonuses do jive with sort of what we think of as tanking, right? Yeah. 2016 and 2017 was about building for the future. And then in 2018, one of the incentives in the contract was for winning 10 games. Right. So there were no incentives for how many games you won in the first two years. And then in the third year, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. there were incentives for winning games. So there's two, two questions I have about this from Hugh's perspective. First of all, um, it's hard for Hugh to argue that this is the reason he was fired, is that he didn't follow this, because if 2018 was the reason they uh, the, the season they were supposed to actually win, uh, and then they started two five and one, that's when he got fired. Right. The other is I don't quite understand why Hugh Jackson was supposed to get bonuses based on things like cap carryover and how many draft picks they got by trading down in the draft. Like Hugh Jackson doesn't have any control over that. Right. And the first thing was, well, they have to lose to get all those high picks. It's like they have to make trades to get all yeah. of those high picks. So, like, losing is a contributor to that. But if you want more than one, no, no one can lose hard enough to get two first-round picks. That's that's trading. So I don't know if this is – well, these were the bonuses that were spread across the football operations department that Hugh, along with Sashi, along with other people, were going to share these bonuses if they accomplished these things. Or if Hugh and – misrepresented a little bit what some of these things were. Um, But you're right. That doesn't logically add up. The other thing I would say about this is for year one, for the very first year, I guess, 2016, I don't hate most of this. And I'm usually the the skeptic of the group of the. Right. You're the guy who's usually anti tanking in particular, you're anti the idea of analytics equals tanking. Yes. Yes. I think analytics, one thing tanking is a, nonsense it's like a weird you know side thing that comes up but analytics means rebuilding but not necessarily rebuilding in a way that says well let's just lose some games everything i heard there none of it like i said says lose games specifically but it talks about real benchmarks for rebuilding your roster like getting those extra picks carrying over in the first year cap space instead of just throwing it at you know the honey badger or something like that because you feel like it I like most of those. I think those are good decisions. My question will always be in year two, I don't want to hear about cap carryover and I don't want to hear about those things. If we're still not focused on winning, I would like to hear things like we had two guys voted to the pro bowl. You get a bonus or 
so many guys under the age of 25 did X, Y, and Z, and you get a bonus and things like that. So that they're being rewarded for the development of the players that are, that are on the roster. That's something we didn't see with what they put it, put in paper there. So my attempt at the devil's advocate here is like, I guess it's a little bit timing related, but it was pretty transparent that the Browns were kind of doing this rebuild at the time. Right. So like, I would say that if winning is your goal as a coach to sort of safeguard your career, maybe the Browns needed to add some incentives to hire a coach, to attract a coach, to be like, yeah, we're probably going to lose in the short term. But like, if we win, that's great. Your career is going great. It's going to lead to success. But if we lose, hey, here are some like kickers to make it a little bit friendlier for you. So like, sorry, we gave you this kind of bad deal in the short term. Uh, and here's some financial offset for it. So like, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation. Like, are they encouraging Jackson to, to lose? Or are they saying that, hey, you may lose, but we'll give you a little bit more because this is actually kind of a raw deal in the short term and we'll try to win later. Right. I, I will point out that, you know, they didn't fire Hugh after the 0-16. Right. They fired him when in the year when they were supposed to, okay, this is the year we, we were targeting. This is the year we're going to compete. Yeah. He started two, five, and one. And then they were like, okay, you're gone. <laughs> right, right. And and again, like you said, everyone knew that this was going to be both a rebuild in the traditional sense and a moneyball analytics flavored rebuild. Like closer to what teams do in other sports like the Philadelphia 76ers or the Houston right. Astros. Right. So, and again, I had I was a big skeptic of the, well, in four years, please stop talking to me about what's going to happen in four years because all of your rookies should be looking for new contracts in four years if they succeeded. You, you can't just like wait out four years and see what happens. But for that first year, Hugh should have known all this, been on board with all this from the time that he said yes to Haslam and whoever else and, and signed that contract. Yeah. So do you think this – uh, the sort of controversy over this is going to keep teams from signing, making deals like this in the future. I don't know. I don't. Or do you it, think it's going to sort of be forgotten? I mean, so much of this just sounds like it's. And again, the, the issues of racism in the NFL are multitude, and there's all sorts of things. This sounds more like a Hugh Jackson thing, and I, I guess I, I'm worried that like the things that we were applauding the Browns for. And by we, I mean all of us, and you, you know, like five years ago, are now being offered as evidence of something else. And that's the yeah. part that feels very weird and very strange. And it's like, no, we, uh, we, we're we trying to put a, a scientific measure on how a rebuilding goes, and that's what that was. So I don't think anybody's going to put this in writing anymore. No, but, that, um, I mean, you can't, it's hard to promise it without putting it in writing. It Like in a perfect world, the NFL would take away the incentive to be bad. And so like, you know, if if you I don't I don't know how you do it. Like other sports have tried, and we haven't really come up with anything. If we want to keep the draft, which now gets like Super Bowl viewership and has hundreds of thousands of people in attendance in, in Vegas, I, I don't really know how you get rid of that. And so teams are going to be encouraged to lose games to try to get the best quarterback. I just want to point out, all those people went to Vegas to watch announcements, and teams. Are, <laughs> no. <laughs> But teams are not incentivized to lose games. I mean, in, in the most general level, this is the great incentive package. You go one and 31, you get fired, and then it be, turns into a hassle after, you know, for years to come afterwards. There's not a really good example of, oh, this, this is the incentive, and look what you got out of it. Yeah, I really feel like teams are only incentivized to lose games for one year. Because that quarterback is so important, and you want to get that quarterback at the top of the draft. After that, you want your quarterback to learn how to win. 
for one year. Jacksonville did not want a second straight year of the number one pick. They were good with one year of the number one pick. Yeah, for one year in the year that the quarterback is there, and kind of when you reach December something if, and you're down there. Yeah. Right, because it's like you know that that's kind of what that's kind of what the I don't want to talk about the Dolphins might be a totally different situation. But oh, we stink now. It's December, and we look looks like that guy's there, and maybe we should take the put, ease up on the brakes, but that's similar to what you said, Scott, like the, Oh, well, it's week 18. Let's give the rookie a start. It's a different this thing. Is, it's like we're incentivized to lose. I, I just disagree, Mike, because we, we should revisit this next off season after the Panthers win seven games, because they'll probably have a little bit more success early trying to win. They'll fire rule. They'll start Coral right. and start losing, but they're going to be too far ahead of teams like the Falcons and Seahawks and aren't going to get CJ Stroud next year. Right. They're going to have to settle for a second tier guy. And right. yes, we all are bad at evaluating quarterbacks and maybe they'll right. get Justin Herbert and it'll be great. Right. But I think they would rather have their choice of all the quarterbacks if they could. Or maybe they'll get Baker Mayfield, which was the grand prize <laughs> of this. And I saw you guys in the message board successful because now six years later, the Browns look like they might be good after they hired this guy to be a quarterback. Mm. No need to get into that. Yeah, it is true. The, the the grand prize of the tanking was Baker Mayfield. Well, yes. the grand prize was the ability to choose your own quarterback. Right. And I'm not saying that they did a bad job taking Baker. I think we would have encouraged them to take Baker, but right. they had the chance to take Josh Allen too. And it just didn't work out. It's, it's hard. It's super hard, but you want to have the option to get the quarterback you want to get. Yeah. Patrick Seeley says this is the Patriots 2020 model. Try to win with Cam Newton and no roster and then get baby goat Mac Jones. I think he's more of a baby llama. <laughs> uh, like a Mac Dalai Lama, Jones. yeah. Uh, I don't think he's any kind of baby goat. Right. And, and you know, and of course the Patriots are 100%, 100% satisfied. With let, Mac let, Jones. let Mac Jones be his own person, I think. Yeah, which is why best. you draft Bailey Zappi because you're 100% on board. I think the best, well, they took Bailey Zappi in the fourth round. I mean, I don't know what they were doing, but they, it wasn't to replace Mac Jones. No, I mean, no. It was fourth for, round, you don't take a quarterback in the fourth round because you want to replace your starter. You, you don't take one in the fourth round when you're completely satisfied with your starter either. But all right. They, they, did, that with, they did that with Brady all the time now. So clearly, yeah. Kevin O'Connell and Cliff Kingsbury and – uh, Matt Castle and Bradley Zappi and Jared Stidham. And like, they do this every couple of years. They take one of these mid round quarterbacks just cause. Everything's going to be do. just fine. Patriots fans. Everything's going to be just fine. There's a lot of reasons to believe that things are not going to be just fine on the list of reasons to think that things are not going to be just fine. Drafting Bailey Zappi is reason 347. And, so, and I will agree with you. It's at least reason three in this draft class. So it's not even <laughs> it's not even close to one of the biggest important. Like losing J.C. Jackson, and uh, why did we give Johnu Smith so much money, and Nelson Aguilar not really a number one receiver, and Cole Strange was drafted two rounds too early. I mean, like, and all the cornerbacks they drafted were five foot nine. I mean, there's lots. <laughs> Bailey Sappy is way, way, way. Way, way down on the, the list. The level of cognitive game. dissonance here is staggering. And Patrick Seely says, ha we got a Pro Bowl quarterback. Patrick, you're the one who put Pro Bowl in quotation marks, not me. I think your fingers, I think your fingers were speaking to you. I don't think there's any cognitive distance. I think <laughs> Bailey Zappi replaces Jarrett Stidham. He doesn't replace Mac Jones. 
I don't know why they took him. I wouldn't have drafted him. Right. I would have banged the table for EJ Perry, and I would have done it in the sixth round, not the fourth. But still, <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like, you know, Bailey Zappi has absolutely no mobility whatsoever. Like, he, he works great if you're never going to ever let the other team rush the passer for any reason. But you <laughs> seriously, like, there are plenty of reasons to believe that the Patriots messed up this offseason or this draft or this offseason and this draft. And drafting Bailey Zappi is really not one. There's, there's way more. There's way more important things that they screwed up. Like, the Cole Strange thing is way more important. Drinking soda. Way more important. Drinking tea. All right. <laughs> that does it for the show, folks. Thank you to Scott, and congratulations again. Have a great weekend. Have a great next two weeks on Honeymoon. Thank you. Excited to. Thank you to Mike. Mike and I will be back next Thursday to argue more about pointless fourth-round, third-string quarterbacks because that's what you all want to hear. You all want to hear us argue about third string quarterbacks because that's where the real money is made in this business <laughs> we're not going to argue about letting your number one corner go to a conference rival we're nope. going to argue about replacing nope. your third string Get quarterback because that's how you know that a team is really missing things getting six more running backs to add to the list when Devontae Parker's your number one that's player. another thing that goes on the list of things that are more important than Bailey Zappi that's correct yes there may not be a show next year Y'all get called up to first take, by the way. Exactly. Drafting another two running backs. We're trying something new, Scott, arguing on the talk. <laughs> no one's ever tried this in the history of sports talk. We'll try it and see if it works. Just try to come up with a Cowboys argument for next week to get the viewership up. Oh, all right. How, how about um, the Cowboys are still going to be pretty good this year? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why don't you go? Are the Eagles the new number one NFC East team next week? There you go. Yeah, well, the, here in Philly. Here, here's a hint from the projections, folks. The Eagles and Cowboys are going to be pretty good this year, and they have very easy schedules. And Carson Wentz twice a, a year for both of them. And Carson, you should get Carson Wentz twice a year. <laughs> All right, guys, that's the show. We'll be back next Thursday. Uh, tomorrow's Splash Play at 2.30, so check that out. And uh, we will see you guys next Thursday. So long, everyone. Bye.